1965, our U.S. Armed Forces were entering a brutal and bloody conflict that would end up taking 10 years. That conflict was known as the Vietnam War. And in 1965, specifically aiming for November, Lieutenant Colonel Hal Moore of the 7th Cavalry was tasked with leading the very first soldiers to go into Vietnam. No one had ever stepped foot in Vietnam before. No one had ever fought the enemy over there before. They were going into unknown terrain, fighting against a vicious and a tough enemy that had conquered France just 20 years prior. Communism was running wild over in South Vietnam, and they were under a cruel, vicious dictator, and there was a fear amongst America that they were going to take that communism in a sort of a domino effect, Western, and start working their way Western. Cambodia and Laos had already fallen. There was a fear of what was next. But, as we had already pointed out, there was a lot of unknowns about this warfare. There was a lot of unknowns that nobody knew what kind of enemy we're going to face. Are they like the Japanese that we just fought in World War II? Are they more vicious? And especially, the commanding officers in Washington had this idea that for the first time ever, they wanted to utilize helicopters for the first time ever in warfare into battle. Helicopters that were going to be used for picking up wounded and dropping off fresh soldiers. And in some cases, having them be armed with gunships. Lieutenant Colonel Hal Moore of the 7th Cavalry had a huge task for his men that he was leading. This was no ordinary task. It was not an easy mission, especially with so many unknowns. Years later, actually only about 20 years ago, there would be a movie made starring Mel Gibson called We Were Soldiers, and it was about this three-day-long battle. It's called the Battle of the Idrang Valley. And it was the first battle that kicked off the Vietnam War. And the entire movie was looking at these men and not only that battle, and it's a pretty brutal movie. If, it's, uh, if you're one who gets uh, squeamish at certain parts, then you probably shouldn't watch it. Um, but it was a really, really, many people from what I've looked at, from what I've studied, they said it's one of the most historically accurate movies ever made. Colonel Hal Moore himself actually said... Most movies, they exaggerate, and they make it big for drama and all of this stuff to get butts in the seats. But he goes, that movie is exactly how it happened, and I was there. And in the movie, there's a, a scene where Mel Gibson, who plays Hal Moore, is training his soldiers underneath him to go into battle. And they're utilizing the helicopters as the helicopters are dropping them in. And they're timing it because they know you can't have a helicopter, a bird that big, on the ground when there are people all throughout the jungles with RPGs and machine guns that are firing at that bird, firing at that helicopter. You can't keep it grounded for too long. So they're training their men to try to go through quicker, go through quicker, go through quicker. I want to show you guys a clip, one minute clip, one minute, 17 seconds from this movie and it kind of goes into what we're going to be talking about tonight. Understood? Yes, sir. We'll be landing under fire, gentlemen. Men will die. You learn the job of the man above you, and you teach your job to the man below you in rank. 
And that goes for everyone. Why? Because of the unknowns. Because in this warfare, men die. People get taken out. I've tried every single week to present a different elements of spiritual warfare and using actual warfare to help mirror it because when it comes to not only making disciples but the Christian walk in general, this is special forces. This is spiritual special forces what we get trained to do. And each and every single day you go out and while you may not face gunfire from AK-47s of the Viet Cong, every single day you fight a heavy barrage of fiery darts from an unseen enemy. And one wrong move can cause you to get taken out. So question, if that happens, who picks up where you leave off? Churches die left and right, either because they age out I mean, you guys probably know of maybe grandparents' churches where when you go and visit them out of state or out of town and you go and see them and it's just everybody their age there. And if every single one of them <laughs> croaked the next day, that church is shutting its doors. But it's not just that. If churches have no plan to reproduce and to teach others the fundamentals of the faith so that they then teach others, the fundamentals of the faith so that they then teach others how to make disciples, then they're going to die out. And this goes especially for you guys as well. Everything that he mentioned on there is a picture of discipleship. You ought to learn from those above you in rank, and you ought to teach what you do. I don't care if it's the prayer sheet. I don't care if it's visiting people. I don't care if it's just texting people every now and then. Hey, how you doing? Whatever it is that you do, if you're an upperclassman and you're going to graduate soon, you better teach some of these underclassmen how to do that. The reasons why. How often should they contact people? How often should you get together with somebody? What are the ins and outs of the prayer sheet? About organizing, going to the mall to witness, about the guys and the girls' Bible studies, and about discipleship as a whole. So the question begs, who's following you and who are you learning from? That's why tonight we're going to look at the practical way to make disciples. Because when those fiery darts come, and if you're not prepared, and if you're not armored up, and you get taken out, same thing for me, same thing for any of the other pastors. If that happens, I know that there's at least 20 other men who will step up and do what we do. What about you? What about this ministry? If your best friend in this room right now decides to quit, to chuck it, and to walk away, what are you doing? Even if they think, oh, man, I got wrong there, or you don't know what so-and-so did, or you don't know what was said, okay, maybe they have some validity there. Either way, if they walk away, what are you doing? When it comes to this idea of making disciples, I, I have a fear that, especially in the senior high, when you finish discipleship and you, you graduate, so to speak, and you're done, there's almost this, ah, all right, I got my Tuesday night back. We've talked about this before. Instead of looking for, okay, who's the person I'm going to teach? Who, who am I going to train in the fundamentals? Who am I going to sit down with? No, Tuesday nights are discipleship nights. Who am I going to meet with to go over this book with and train them on how to make disciples? Maybe that's the mindset we should have. Maybe there are some of you who are like, well, I finished discipleship and yeah, you know, no one just seems to be interested. I guess I'll just wait to get assigned a junior hire to disciple. Could be. But that's what tonight's about. What if what God wants you to do is to grab a cup of coffee with your best friend, you know, on the track team, baseball team, 
whatever other sports going on right now. Basketball's finishing up. Dance, speech and debate, musical. Some people might be laughing at the baseball team, my friends. How come you're not practicing right now? <laughs> Got him. What if God wants you to sit down with that person, one-on-one with them, and do what we did last week, where you go through lesson one, and maybe when you bring them to that point of decision, they decide, wow, this is what I was missing. Here I thought that going to heaven was all about doing good works. And instead, I just found out it's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And then they pray to receive Christ. And now you get to continue meeting with them weekly. And by the time you're done with them, you challenge them. Hey, pick your best friend in class and go get coffee with them and go over lesson one. That's what tonight is all about. But you can't just dive into it willy-nilly. Number one on your study sheet, there needs to be personal preparation. Paul said, be ye followers of me. Not that we should follow a man, no. He said, be ye followers of me as I follow Christ in 1 Corinthians 11.1. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. How do we personally prepare ourselves to go out and not be assigned a disciple, but make a disciple? How do we prepare ourselves? Well, the first check mark on there means it says, remember the mission. That's what Matthew 28, 18 and 20. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. It was the last words in the gospel of Matthew. It was the last words of Christ in the very first gospel of the New Testament. The very last words of Christ in the second gospel of the New Testament, Mark 16, 15. Go and preach the gospel to every creature. That's the mission. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Remember the mission. Count the cost. You can check out Luke 14 later. It's all about that. No man, when he goes to build a house or build an extension on his house, just decides, hey, I'm going to go through and do this without checking first to see if he has enough funds to finish it. Count the cost. And the third thing, stay in remembrance. Luke 18, look with me in verse 28. Then Peter said, Lo, look, in other words, we have left all and followed thee. We've left everything behind. We don't care. We're not going to be identified by what sport we play, by our our GPA score. We're not going to be identified as that. Do all things heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men, Colossians 3 says. But that's not going to be where your identity's found in. Lo, we've, we've left all and followed thee. And he, Jesus, verse 29, said unto them, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or parents or brethren or wife or children. No one has left those things for the kingdom of God's sake who shall not receive manifold more in this present time and in the world to come life everlasting. In other words, remember the mission, count the cost, and stay in remembrance. Jesus is saying here, you know what? If you really truly do as a disciple, as the book of Luke says constantly throughout, If you forsake all and follow him, and you're going to have Jesus Christ be the most important person in your life, above your family, above your friends, above your activities that you're involved in, above your work, if you're going to forsake all and say him above all, it's going to cost you. It might cost you dearly. To this day, I still have strained relationships with family. But when you do that and you make that decision, Jesus gives us a promise. You do that, you're going to receive manifold more, not only in the next life, in the next kingdom, you're going to receive manifold more in this life. As difficult as things might be, 
I wouldn't change a thing. God has been very good to me. In other words, when we're talking about discipleship and personal preparation, if you want to take some notes, jot some things down, you must understand, and this is something I tell every single one of my disciples the first week we meet, it takes commitment. It takes commitment. Not just once a week to sit down and meet for an hour, hour and a half, but do you understand, in the six to eight to a year that you're done, you're just beginning. That's what we spent all these weeks trying to paint the picture of, that you're not done with discipleship when you're done with discipleship. This is the plan to reach the entire planet. And it's really not that bad. So the question is, have you counted the cost? And have you found it worthy of your time and sacrifice? Those of you who have been discipled, those of you who are being discipled, have you counted the cost and have you found it worthy of your time? Has your disciple done the same? Have you properly prepared your disciple that you're meeting with to do the same? How have you trained them? That's for those of you who already have made your own disciples or you've been assigned a disciple. But if you want to look out to your classrooms, to the hallways, to the places where you work, and you want to try to find someone that, man, maybe that person, maybe God's leading me to them for a reason. In order to lead them to the Lord and then disciple them, you got to be personally prepared for the commitment and for the cost. Next, turn over to Luke chapter 9. Not only do you need to remember the mission, count the cost, and stay in remembrance, but you need to prioritize the work of the Lord. I can be a little extreme. Um, what I mean by that is that some things can be either dark black or just blindingly bright white. There's no in-between with me. There's no gray. And sometimes you'll go from a pendulum where you'll be way over here and then just swing right over here and there's no proper balance. Understand, we're not talking about like commitment levels or like being lukewarm in your faith. I'm talking about proper balance in life. You know, that's what we're talking about. But if I'm being honest, I think sometimes we will allow the things of life, school, sports, relationships, to get in the way of the work of the Lord because we're not prioritizing things properly. Look at verse 57. And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. That's the, the literal definition of a disciple. But here's what Jesus said back to that. He's like, oh, are you sure? Jesus said unto him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. It's going to be uncomfortable at times. Verse 59, And he said unto another, Follow me. But he, the man whom Jesus was talking to, said, Well, first suffer me, or suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. You might miss out on certain family activities. There's got to be balance. You don't just completely up and forsake your family. There has to be balance. But are you maybe out of balance on the other side of things? Or you won't miss a family thing for the life of you, even if there is a youth activity going on. And another, verse 61, also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at my house, or which are at my home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. You guys understand in these verses we just read, he's not talking about salvation. These are people who have called him Lord. They're saved. The context of this passage is all about discipleship. It's all about what you do after you're saved. That's what we just read about. And he says, hey, if you put your hand in the plow and say, all right, I'm all in. I am ready to be discipled. I am ready to make disciples. And you start looking back at things. Jesus Christ says, you're not in shape. You're not in shape to be a teacher. You're not in shape to be a discipler. The dilemma is, well, I can either stay the way I am 
and not succeed in my mission that God has given me and not fulfill the mission and the mandate and then die and go to heaven a saved Christian but have absolutely zero rewards and fruit and nobody coming with you. Or you can decide to get in shape. Prioritizing the work of the Lord. Again, schoolwork, sports, and relationship, these are all important. But does Christ get chumped in your life because of those other things? I mean, shouldn't he be the absolute highest priority above all of those things? We can't just have him be an addendum, an add-on to our main focus. So here's the thing, and I want you guys to think about this. If you finished discipleship six months ago or longer, and you don't have a disciple, I don't mean this to sound cruel, I'm just going to simply ask, what are you doing? What are you doing? Again, I'm talking to those who have finished discipleship. And it's been six months to a year. What is it you're doing? If you're genuinely trying to go out and make disciples, or, or maybe you think that maybe someone's just going to come into the youth room, and man, we just really clicked and we hit it off, and man, it just seems like God is naturally tying us together to be uh, discipled, then maybe you're waiting for something that's just not going to come. And maybe God's asking you to go out to the highways and byways and start looking to make your own instead of letting one be assigned to you. Because if you finished one-on-one discipleship, but you're not actively pursuing to find a disciple, then you're not prioritizing the work. You're not. That's the reality of the matter. I absolutely love this verse. 1 Corinthians 16, 15, Paul says, I beseech you, brethren. You know the house of Stephanus. You know the house of Stephanus, right? You guys know him. That is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they, the house of Stephanus, have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. I remember the first time I saw that, I had to check. I was like, is that, that's the King James version of that? And it says addicted? Huh. Thought it was a newer modern Bible with modern language. No, that is the only time that the word addicted shows up in your Bible. It has to do with people that addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. You guys know, I mean, how many books of Stephanus have you read in your Bible? I mean, I'm sure you guys heard Paul mention Stephanus in each and every single one of his letters of the New Testament. No. By our vernacular, the guy's a nobody. But here, forever recorded in God's word, he and his entire house are known for being addicted to ministry. They're not some super mega church pastor. He wasn't some Billy Graham type that we know of. I would think if he was and leading millions and millions to the Lord, he'd probably get some recognition in other letters of the New Testament, but we don't see it. No. So when we say of being addicted to the ministry, that doesn't mean that you have to go ahead and quit high school and go into full-time missionary service. It's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the work the Lord did that He has now passed on to you and me. Is that your priority? Am I as loud as Pastor Aaron is always? Goodness, I can like hear him reverberating through here. 2 Corinthians 2.11. This is the opposite side of that. If you're not prioritizing the work and you're not personally preparing your heart, then you're ignorant of Satan's devices. Paul said, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Are you? Again, the things I mentioned earlier, there is nothing wrong with them. Unless sports, school, Homework, relationships, jobs, family, unless they take you away from prioritizing the work of the Lord. Don't be ignorant of Satan's devices. Yes, Satan will use even seemingly good things like those things I mentioned 
to deceive you and distract you away from the priority of the mission. You guys go back and read Genesis 3 when he shows up to Adam and Eve and he deceives them. Go back and look at what he actually says and count how many lies he actually tells. You know what you'll find? More often than not, what he spoke was more truth than lies. It's just a little bit of lies sprinkled in. The devices he uses to try to deceive you, to get your eyes focused off of discipleship and the work of the Lord, is good things, just with a little bit tiny lie in it. You can drink a beverage that's 99% water, but if there's a drop of arsenic in there, you're dead. 99% of the things that you guys are involved in could be good things, but if there's that one little tiny drop that takes you one degree at a time away from prioritizing the work of the Lord, you're going to end up in the fields of the fatherless, Proverbs says. So personal preparation. I have a question on there for you guys. I want you to take some time to fill it out. What are the things that distract you from remembering your mission, prioritizing your walk with God, and making disciples of Jesus Christ? And I get it. This, this message is primarily focused on you going out and doing what we did last week and making a disciple. Seeing someone come to the foot of the cross and receive Christ as Savior as you're teaching them, and then they choose to follow His footsteps. I get that. But maybe some of you out there who haven't been discipled yet, you answer that question in that light. What things are distracting me from being discipled? Take some time and answer that. Be honest. If it's nothing, if you are actively looking and searching, be honest. God knows your heart. We're not going to turn this in. I'm not going to look at it. None of your leaders are. See some still writing. I think some didn't even write anything at all. <laughs> Not judging. <laughs> so that's personal preparation. Point two, once you have personal preparation, now you can have a proper perspective. Now you can do what Jesus says in John 4:35, which was our camp theme a couple years ago. Lift up your eyes and would you look at this? On the fields. Matthew 9.36, Jesus is saying that he wept. He had compassion upon the multitudes because they were as sheep having no shepherd. You know what Matthew 4.19 says? Jesus is saying, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. But if you want to be a fisher of men or a disciple maker, you have to know where to look. But if your heart's not prepared, you're not going to be looking where you need to be. But where do you start? Turn over to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Stephen was just martyred in Acts chapter 7, so God says, all right, I'm going to switch up my method. I'm going to do something that wasn't necessarily kind of planning on doing. I'm going to go with another option here. And so he starts moving into Gentile territory. Once Israel and the religious Jewish leaders decided, nope, we don't want Jesus. Or we don't want any of his messengers. So verse 1 of Acts chapter 8. Actually, no, and we're not going to look there. There's a man by the name of Philip, one of the disciples. And because of the persecutions that were going around, he ends up getting scattered to Samaria, which was a Gentile nation, not so friendly to the Israelites. And while Philip is down there, and as he's walking with God, look at verse 26. That's where we'll begin. The angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and what? 
That's a great commission. Go toward the south into the way thou goest down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he obeyed. He arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia and eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of Ethiopia, who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship. Well, what was he doing? Verse 28. He was returning and sitting in his chariot reading Isaiah the prophet. That's the book of Isaiah. Isaiah in Hebrew, translated into Greek, translated into English, is Isaiah. He's reading the Old Testament. Verse 29, Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. You know what the first thing you need to have when you do a proper perspective? If you're looking for a disciple and you're like, man, nothing seems to be happening at church. I'm waiting for that person to come in that we just click with and our personalities are great. Waiting for a junior hire for me to sit down and train. Well, maybe God's asking you to look outside the church at your schools. Maybe even with your family, cousins, siblings, what have you. Look outside the church. You see, in verse 29, if your heart is personally prepared and you have the proper perspective, each and every single morning, you should be asking in prayer to the Lord, God, who is it you want me to talk to today? Ever wake up in the morning or drive on your way to school and just have some quiet time and you don't feel like turning the radio on or anything like that? You don't feel like syncing the phone up and playing Amazon Music or whatever? Turning the radio. Who does radio anymore? You ever just pray and say, Lord, I'm not really sure what to pray. I've <sighs> been striking out here, been striking out there. You know what a good prayer to have is? God, who is it you want me to talk to today? And then be looking for those opportunities. Be looking for somebody at the lunch table or in study hall. Don't talk, otherwise you're going to get detention. But maybe you find a way you could talk with them afterwards. What have you? God, who do you want me to speak to today? You see, when it comes to having proper perspective, you need to be with the people. How do we know that? Look at verse 30. After God told him, join yourself to this chariot, look what Philip did. Philip ran thither to him. I don't know if any of you guys have your little introvert hermit times where you're like, I don't want to be around anybody. <laughs> I mean, just even, what was it? Oh, Sunday. Sunday, I, I taught Sunday school, had the parents meeting after that. I had like six other times I was going to be teaching this week. I'm like, you know what? Monday's my day off. I am putting my phone up on my nightstand. I'm going to the basement. I am not going to have it near me at all. I'm going to unplug and just be away from everybody just so I can detox a little bit. We need that from time to time. But if you want to be a disciple maker and you're like that all the time, you have to eventually come out and be with people. Philip ran and joined himself to the chariot. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers, but you still have to be a minister to them if you want to reach them for the gospel's sake. The next thing, look what he says next. Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah. You know the other thing you have to have for proper perspective? Not only do you need to be with the people, you need to be a listener. Be a listener. Listen for the conversations that are happening at the lunch table. Listen for conversations that are happening amongst your teammates. Listen. It might just be that that's God opening that door saying, here you go. You just learned this at church last week. You have a slew of verses that you can then introduce in the conversation. Be a listener. Be a listener. Well, that breaks down into a couple of things. Be a listener of their day-to-day -day life. Be a listener for the things that they're involved in. You know, I mean, we were just talking about this, me, Warren, and Andy. And I've shared this with you guys about, about mall witnessing, too. There were times in my life where, man, I, you know, gone through this book, 
one heartbeat away about sharing your faith, about answering tough questions that atheists and agnostics might have. I've gone through that book since I was a freshman in college, gone through which one you're reading, One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven, Hayden's Reading the Watchmen, gone through all these books. I know the rhetoric. I know what things to say. I know what I'm going to do when I'm witnessing and sharing my faith with somebody. So much so that as they're trying to talk with me, I might not even be listening to a word they're saying because I'm just picking up on the cues and I'm just waiting. Okay, they're saying that and then I'm going to hit them with this one. And then I'm going to send this one their way. And then I'm going to hit them with that verse. Anybody else relate to that? Where you're not actually listening to the person because you have the speech down in your head already and you already know what you're going to say regardless of what it is they're saying. I think that's when we can do a big disservice by having things just be completely fake. That's not a conversation. That's not what Christ did. We got to be careful with that. We need to be better listeners because you know what you'll find? If you keep this zipped, and then you turn this off, you'll find that as people start talking, they'll start opening up and pouring out their heart to you. And you'll find what their need is. Just like Jesus in John 4 with the woman at the well, as she was speaking, he uncovered her need and he met her need where she was at. Maybe what you were going to say to that person at the mall for the very next gotcha, maybe it's not what they needed to hear. Maybe if you were just listening a little bit more to their life and what they're involved in in their day-to-day things, maybe God was going to say, okay, now take it here. If you're going to be having the proper perspective and trying to make disciples at your school, you got to be good listeners. We have to be. And next, look what he did. Philip ran thither to him. He was with the people. He heard him read the prophet Isaiah. He was a listener. And said, Understandest thou what thou readest? Huh. You know what we have to do? We have to be inquisitive. Ask questions. Ask questions. Here's just a couple of them. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? What do you believe about Jesus? What do you think happens when we die? That one is both captivating and disarming at the same time. Who is Jesus? People might be on their, on their defensive about like, oh, you're going to bring some Jesus stuff into me. Whereas if you just ask them what happens when we die, that could be a very sobering question real fast. And that can cause people, that's, you're not really getting into religious talk. I mean, hey, you know it's a fact that 10 out of 10 people die? What do you think happens? Where do you think you go? Does nothing happen? Another question. Do what Philip did. Have you ever read the Bible? Did you understand it? Hey, you didn't? Well, you know what? At my church, we actually teach a Bible study. It takes about an hour long. Would you like to get together with me? And I'll sit down and I'll take you through. I mean, in fact, just this past Wednesday, me and this other person, we did it for like 20 minutes. And I found out, wow, I can actually teach this part of the, this lesson. And there you go. Can you imagine, as I've said for weeks and weeks and weeks, if each and every single one of us did that to just one person this week? You bring them to that point of decision, most will probably say no. But if we get just one sinner converted, if it's a party that's good enough to be thrown in heaven over that, then I think it's worth you and I rejoicing and us going out and doing it again next week. If you care. If your heart is prepared and you have the proper perspective. Look outside the church You are surrounded by people. Just be honest with the giant that you face. Look fear in the eye and slay that demon. Start slinging some stones towards it. Memorize verses on fear. If you're afraid of talking to your classmates, if you're afraid of talking to your family members, memorize some verses on it and get to fighting. 
Next. Yeah, maybe you look inside the church. Turn over to Acts 16. We won't take too, too long on this one. This one's kind of neat. Maybe you're the type of person where all you've been doing is trying to find somebody you work with or someone you go to school with. And no one's biting. You're going fishing and no one's biting. Well, maybe try looking inside the church. Acts 16, then he or then came he to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named who? <gasps> hey, I bet he's got two books in the Bible named after him. The son of a certain woman who was a Jewess and believed. Ugh, but his father was a Greek. Ugh. That's essentially what it was looked at back then. His Jewish mom was a believer. She was a believer. She was a Christian. Ugh, but she married a Gentile dog. And it's implied through this passage and just through everything else that Timothy and his life and where he shows up, it's implied that his dad wasn't around in his life at all. That maybe because of the shame that he abandoned him. Because it was well reported of in verse 2 by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium that his dad was a Greek, a Gentile dog. You know what Paul did? Saw that kid, took him under his wing, he made a disciple out of him. So much so that Paul's very last letter that he ever wrote was to this young man. Maybe your next disciple is in this very room. Might be awkward. You have to have conversations and, ugh, who likes doing that? Maybe it's across the hall. Maybe, maybe it's somebody in the main service at 10, 15 a.m. on Sunday mornings who's not across the hall or in this room the hour prior, but they show up to main service and they're your age. Believe it or not, we do have some teenagers that have only stepped foot in this room one time but they're there faithfully every single Sunday. Do you notice them? Do you see them? Maybe it's there. Or even, I mean, that's a good example. Turn over to chapter 18. I mean, both of these are good examples, but you'll see what I mean here in a second. Verse 24, we touched on this verse on Sunday. And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at where? <laughs> That's ominous. An eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures. Scriptures from Alexandria. He came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord. What was it I said earlier about 1% arsenic and the rest of it's all good stuff? Mighty in the scriptures, instructed in the way of the Lord... This guy sounds like a rock star. And being fervent in the spirit, he was passionate. He spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord. Man, where's the negative here, Corey? Knowing only the baptism of what? You know the baptism of John is different than the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Baptism of John is... The nation of Israel being baptized in water as remission of sins to prepare themselves to receive the coming of the Messiah. Is that how you got saved? No. That's not salvation. That's not New Testament salvation. You were saved when you came to realize that you're dead. And in order to be saved... You needed to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross alone. And when you called upon him by faith, he saved you. And the Bible says that he takes you and he baptizes you spiritually into the Holy Spirit. And he takes the Holy Spirit and baptizes him into you. That's New Testament salvation. That's Romans chapter 6. Apollos. Though he was an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures. What else does it say? 
fervent in the spirit, spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord. He wasn't saved. You might find somebody who fits the mark for all of those things, but when you start talking with them and spend time with them, you might find, just like Paul did, they ain't saved. Maybe you make a disciple out of them. Maybe it's somebody who needs to go through the journey lessons. Maybe we're talking about one-on-one discipleship through the journey material like we looked at last week. Or maybe for those of you upperclassmen who are leaving, who you have certain ministry roles and certain things that you do here in the senior high, maybe you need to start looking in the church for someone who's going to take your place. In other words, in the bottom of your sheet, get creative. Well, not the bottom. <laughs> We're not at the bottom yet. Only midway. Get creative and look everywhere. Lost and saved alike. So ask yourselves, what are some ways and places you need to actively start looking for a disciple? Take some time and fill this out. Be honest. Don't lie to anybody, especially yourself. What are some ways and places you need to actively start looking for a disciple? Think outside the box and start putting some things down. Believe it or not, the rest of this will go pretty quick. I don't have much to say on the rest of it. That could change. As the Spirit leads. Now that you've had personal preparation, now you have the proper perspective. Point number three. Now it's time for diligent discernment. You've been looking around. Hopefully tomorrow you start looking around for the ways that you're going to reach out and start looking for a disciple. You can't just pick, maybe, the first person that says yes to meet with you. You can't. Maybe. You need to have some discernment. You need to make sure that you also don't overbear yourself. And the first five people who agree to meet with you, what are you going to do, disciple all five of them? You have to be careful. Hold your... Yeah, you don't have to. We'll come back to it. Just turn back to Luke chapter 14. Luke 14. It's funny. You start reading the Gospels and you see things like this pop up everywhere. John chapter 6, if you want to put that down, is another great example. But in Luke 14, look at me in verse 25. And there went great multitudes with him, Jesus. Multitudes. Great swarms of people. In John chapter 6, they showed up because, man, this Jesus guy can make bread multiply. Wink, wink. And we get fed, and we like getting fed. So let's follow him to see what new parlor tricks and magic show he does next. You have the multitudes who are just constantly swarming him. And he turned and said unto them, the multitudes, if any man, singular amongst the multitude, come to me. Oof. This is one of those tough passages. And hate not his father and mother and wife and children, and brethren, and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, does anybody have notes in their Bible that they've taken from how to study the Bible, per se, that you have a verse right next to that? Because this is a tough pill to swallow. Does Jesus really want me to hate my mom and my dad and my brothers? Well, I can hate my brothers and sisters. That's pretty easy. But does he really want me to hate my mom, my dad, and everybody else? 
Anybody have a verse that helps explain this and illuminate us? Anybody have it written down? It's, mm, <laughs> it's Matthew 10, 37. It's the exact same passage. It's a parallel passage in the Gospel of Matthew. Only Matthew's perspective, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, as God was speaking to him and he wrote it down, he says, If any man love father and mother more than me, he cannot be my disciple. So here he's saying, hate father and mother. If anybody doesn't hate father and mother, and then in Matthew he's saying, if anybody doesn't, it, it loves father and mother more than me. What Jesus is doing, it's a figure of speech. It's a, it's a literary device known as, which by the way, that's what I was missing at Maslin Baptist today. Literary device. Sorry, sidebar. Figure, or not figure of speech, it's hyperbole. He's speaking in exaggerative terms to make a point. I mean, did that not stand out to you when you read that verse? Holy smokes, does, he, does Jesus say that? I thought Jesus was love and the lamb and all that stuff. Yeah, he's speaking that harshly because it's going <laughs> to prove a point. It's going to cause it to stand out for you. When you compare Scripture with Scripture in Matthew 10, 37, you get the understanding. He's simply saying, Jesus Christ needs to be your top priority in everything. No one and no thing comes before him. Nothing. Jesus Christ needs to be your foremost priority. Do you love him more than anyone and anything else? Verse 27, And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. When Jesus bore his cross, it was to his own death. And we're called to die to self every single day. If you love the things that you're involved in, you love your life more than the work of the Lord, you got to go back to step one. And you got to personally prepare yourself. Jesus spoke that to the multitudes, and he's making a contrast between the multitudes and disciples. There's a difference. People you talk to might be one of the multitudes. We're like, yeah, sure, what can church do for me? What can Jesus do for me? Sure, I'll meet with you. You need to determine if they're actually going to be a follower of Christ. Second one, this one's huge. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. You know how you start a letter and you say, to so-and-so. That's what he's doing here. To the saints. A saint is just someone who is a born-again believer. That's it. To the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. <laughs> right out of the gate. Paul's pulling no punches with this letter. And he says, in every church, you have believers, you have born-again Christians, but in every church, you have faithful born-again Christians. There is a difference. Which one are you? The message of the gospel and the message of the word of God in the letter to it, the Ephesians, it's to both. But I don't know about you, I would much rather be a faithful saint rather than just a saint. I'd rather be a disciple rather than just one of the multitudes. So ask yourself, what's the determining factor that separates multitudes, disciples, and saints and faithful saints? What's the determining factor? That friend that you've invited to church a thousand times over and has promised you a thousand times over that they would come and that they've never showed up might be God saying it's time to move on because their heart's not in it. And the next question. This is one you got to think on. What specific ways can you practically discern if a person is truly ready to be actively pursued for discipleship? 
it may not be the first person that says yes to you. What are some ways you're going to have your discerning, your discerning discernment? <laughs> I was going to say discerning glasses, but that sounded so stupid. I forgot I'm not teaching second graders. Point number four. After you have personally prepared yourself, you have the proper perspective, and you are diligently discerning, you need to come to a confident conclusion. Learning how to close the deal, as they say in sales, or walk away. How do I know this person is worth pursuing for discipleship versus, you know what, got to call it quits? Well, turn back to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17 and Acts 18, and then we'll finish. thing that I love about Scripture, especially the book of Acts, the book of Acts is all about patterns. It's the book that represents early church history and gives us a pattern for everything of how Christ was going to work the next 2,000 years. The pattern of how Paul worked gives you a pattern on how you can make your own disciple. Verse 1, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the what? Do you know the Scriptures well enough to be able to reason with people on it? What verses would you go to to demonstrate the Gospel to people? It's rhetorical, but if I forced each and every single one of you to answer right now, what would you say? Maybe you need to be discipled because one-on-one discipleship will help give you the tools to know where the verses are in the Bible about the gospel. What about the tough questions they might ask back? What about evolution? Well, why are there so many religions in the world? Oh, why are there so many denominations in Christianity alone? How would you reason with them in the scriptures? Do you know how to study your Bible in order to get those answers? Paul did. Verse 3, opening alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul. There you go. He just made some disciples. And Silas, and of the devout Greeks, a chief multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. Look at verse 10. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night to Berea, who coming thither went into the... So in verse 1, Paul went to the synagogue of the Jews. In verse 10, Paul went to the synagogue of the Jews. Why? Because he was Jewish. Why? Because he used to be a Pharisee. He used things that he had in common, his likes, his background, his interests, and he used it to further the gospel. What are your likes? What are your interests? What are your hobbies? What sports are you in? What extracurricular activities are you in? What job do you have? That's your synagogue. That's where you go. There's people there that you can reason with. Verse 11, These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Amen. Uh, oh, yes, jump down to verse 16. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Do you see things happening in your schools and workplaces that tick you off? Maybe don't be the typical, you know, Christian who's like, that's wrong. Maybe show them why. Don't go online afterwards and, you know, I don't even know. Do you guys, do you, any of you guys on X? Are you guys still called Twitter? Of course you are, Caleb. Dude, there's some funny stuff. <laughs> but do you post anything? No, no, absolutely not. Used to be the social justice warriors always going online, and that was how they made a difference for the kingdom of Christ. Gag me. Doesn't work. Hey, if you see stuff that tick you off, just f downright debauchery at your schools, 
Say something. But do it in the love of Christ and have a conversation with Him. Maybe God will open a door through it like He did Paul. Verse 17, Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Got to be a talker. We're not going to read chapter 18, but you can. You kind of see the pattern here of Paul? Simply it breaks down to this, and here's what you should do. Here's a simple thing. You can start this tomorrow morning. Pray. Pray, God, who do you want me to talk to today? Present. Present your message. Present what God has showed you in your devotions that morning. Present what God taught you last, well, tomorrow it will be last night, right now. Persuade them. Be persuasive. Hey, has this book not changed your life? Has it? One person shaking their head, kind of. If it's changed your life, be persuasive. Say it like it actually has. That's one of the things that completely, that led to my salvation, to be honest. I didn't grow up in church. I remember when I first went down to the First Baptist Church in New Philadelphia, and I heard this crazy man, Mark Trotter, preaching behind a pulpit, and then later, someone that he would send out, Pastor Tom Gang, when I heard them preach, I remember them standing behind a pulpit with this book and actually talking and preaching like they actually believed these crazy stories that I thought was no different than fairy tales. And it, I'm not saying I believed it because they were passionate about it, but it helped to see somebody passionate about this, knowing that just from the way they presented things, that they would die for the things that they were t- talking about in here. Who would do that if it wasn't true? Now you got to be careful because there's an entire religion filled with fanatics who will literally martyr themselves to get 70 virgins in heaven, and they passionately believe that. You don't just go following men because of passion. But it was one of those things that God used for me to see, man, these were, they were very persuasive because they believed it. Not as though it was a fairy tale, as it was actually the Word of God. If you want people in your sphere of influence to see that, then you need to be persuasive and you need to have passion when you talk with them. Perceive. In order to perceive what they're saying, you have to be a listener. Hear what they're saying. God will give you perception into them. Prompt, ask questions. Covered that. And then proceed. Move forward. The pattern of Jesus we've already covered, but you guys can check out those passages, specifically Mark 10 later. So as we wrap up, what is one thing you need to be more confident in? Or what is one thing you need to do to be more confident to know whether or not this person that you are going to start praying for and pursuing after, how do you know if they're going to be one of the multitude or a disciple? If they're going to be a saint or one of the faithful? Write that down. And then lastly, write out at least the names of two people specifically that you're going to start praying for in about 30 seconds when we close out in prayer. You're going to start praying for them then, and you're not going to stop until God closes that door. Who are those two people going to be? And then, who are you going to start pursuing? Both of them? One of them? And maybe whenever someone asks you for the prayer sheet next week, maybe you can get those names down on the paper. And then maybe we would all hold you accountable in the weeks to come. Hey, did you talk with them yet? Have you pursued them yet? Just some practical steps on how you can make your own disciple. Because remember, as I've been trying to warn you, 30 seconds. (laughs) We're going to pray in 30 seconds. As I've been warning you guys and reminding you week after week. What we just covered tonight is Jesus Christ's plan to reach the entire planet, utilizing you. There's no plan B. It was never his plan to build big cathedrals that spanned what used to be a former warehouse 
and have as many people come into one central hub and location as possible so you can have the biggest church in Stark County. You don't see that in the book of Acts. That was never his plan. No, it wasn't for people to come in. It was always for people to go out. God's people to go out and make disciples, and then you plant churches where people are at. And then you go over here and over here. That's it. What we looked at tonight is a component of the only plan to reach the entire planet involving you. And God wants to utilize you. So will you join him? I'm putting this in the back. Hopefully some of you saw it already. It's a sign-up sheet. If you're a new connection, understanding my biblical mission to bring glory to God by fulfilling the biblical mandate to make disciples, I would like to commit to being trained in one-on-one -on -one discipleship. Or, as I've teased before, I have previously been through one-on-one -on -one discipleship and I am commissioned to be a discipler, but believe I have lost my why. Talked about that for weeks. And I have need that one teach me again. If this is you and you don't feel like put your name on here, talk to your leaders. And if it's you and you feel that, but you're like, there's no way I'm going back through discipleship for a year. We're not going to go through the book for a year. We're just going to give you a refresher course so that you can become well acquainted with being a discipler. So if this is either of you guys, sign up in the back. It's going to be out tonight. It's going to be out next week. Let's pray.